Well, good morning again, and uh, welcome to all of you, especially our guests, this, uh, and you know, not only Eric, but uh, many may, may not even know the man who stood up and introduced him. That's our elder Sam Chan, right? And you know he's in the Candies ministry, so if you don't get to, you don't get to have our Candies elders in our English service, so it's a really delight. Welcome, Sam, to you as well. We're glad to have you as well. So Elder Sam is with us today. Anyways, uh, it's weird to not ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Numbers, but uh, so used to preaching on Numbers, just completed it last week. But today I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Psalms. Psalm, Psalm 106 is where we're going to be today. Uh, and uh, usually in between series, uh, I like to just kind of switch up and preach a couple of Psalms, and uh, that's what we're going to do today. <laughs> Truly, it, it feels a little odd to not be in numbers. Uh, there's a lot more uh, contextual background work that I have to work through and prep for us to study this book, but it still, uh, much of it it is that will be covered is familiar stuff to us, especially in light of numbers, but uh, hopefully uh, you'll be blessed because Psalms is a book for worshipers like you and me. Anyways, this coming Saturday, uh, as you heard in our announcements, our, is what's normally called our church's annual Thanksgiving potluck. You know, Thanksgiving potluck. Uh, oh boy, I love Thanksgiving potlucks. Yeah, you know, I was uh, always enjoyed those times as a young man going to potlucks. I'd just bring my little, uh, like little Oreo cookie, and then I would eat all the ribs and the steaks and the, you know, all the good stuff. And you know, well, I brought my Oreo cookies. You know? uh, but you know, I think I've learned my uh, learned a little bit better in these days. So, anyways. Uh, but as you might have heard, it's not so much of a potluck this year. In fact, it's not even a potluck. It's going to be catered. We're getting some catering deal coming in. So I hope you will sign up. I hope you'll join us for that. Not because it's catered food, uh, but because it's a Thanksgiving gathering for our church family. Uh, you can still sign up. Today is the last day. If you do tend to forget and, and, you, know, uh, um, and you kind of remember tomorrow, you know, please reach out to us. You know, we can see if we can twist the special events team and to get open up some more spaces for you if possible. And I hope you will be able to join us because our annual Thanksgiving dinner is meant for a church in San Francisco. I know many of you, a good number of you here are raised in the city and you lived here and you have family to go to for Thanksgiving. I, I get that. But a lot of you are like me and, and Cindy. We're transplants. We, we've, we come from somewhere else in our country, somewhere else in our world. And we come into San Francisco, and maybe in your families, you might not go home, you might not go and celebrate Thanksgiving, but we want to celebrate Thanksgiving with our church family, with you all, with you all. And it's one of the joys of the, of the season. We don't share a meal, we'll have some sharing, we'll, oh, I might even throw in an icebreaker for you, uh, so please come for that. But I hope you'll, you'll come not just to eat, but to come prepared especially, because Thanksgiving is about giving thanks, right? It's about giving thanks to God. And uh, I know if I went around and asked you, you would all, we would not end our service a couple of hours if we had time to share all the things that you're thankful to God for, right? Amen. Amen. Mm. Oh, man, I, that's what I like to hear. All right. <clears throat> yeah, you got to say enough of that. I might just start singing the sermon to you, okay? Okay. Um, anyways. Um, well, brothers and sisters, this Thanksgiving, let me ask you if you should always you should be thinking about it because you should be ready, not just for Thanksgiving potluck, but for all of the season, is what are you thankful to God for this year? What are you thankful to God for this year? This has been 2022. It's been a great year. It's a, uh, you know, it's a, we, we're back. We're, we've been worshiping together. It's really our first full year that I feel like we're together. And a lot of things have come back to normal. We've been, many ministries have returned, uh, been in, put in place. Uh, and so it's been a joy. But... Um, what are you thankful to God for? And I know certainly we will list along the top of our list things like our family, our health, our home, our church. Sure, these are great things, and you ought to be thankful for those things. But there's one thing that every believer in Jesus Christ, everyone here who believes in Christ, worships Christ, ought to praise the Lord for. And I know that you would give the right answer because it is our salvation, Right? That's our song today. It's about God's grace, the grace of God shown to us through Jesus Christ. And yet, though we know it's one of those things that ought to be near the top of that which we give to God God thanks for, oftentimes we we take our salvation for granted. In our list of things we're thankful for, it may not be the first thing we think of. And I always wonder, if it's not the first thing that we think of, is it possible that the gift 
the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord is somehow in our minds and in our hearts not, we're being honest, you know, you don't got to confess it, it's not our greatest treasure. It's not our greatest, most precious thing that we possess. You think about everything else you might possess in this world, and the reality is you're going to lose it. You cannot take it with you. Moth and rust will destroy it. Thieves can break in and steal it. And if those things are still preserved to the end of your life, in your death, you can't take it. It is left here to perish and to, with, the, with the world. And there's only one thing you can take with you, and that's the greatest treasure of all. It's the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And for that reason alone, that delivers us from judgment. That should be like something that we, I'm preaching to you. Like, I see all you nodding and wanting to stand up and shout amen, right? That's where you say amen. <laughs> We're working on Eric. This is normal. This is normal. Okay, don't worry about it. <laughs> but I was always hoping, almost hoping. Hey, praise the Lord. <laughs> Could it be, is it possible that we, and when we think about why is it not our greatest treasure? Well, I know for myself at times, and I, I believe this is probably true for many of us, is that it's not our greatest treasure because we've forgotten the depravity of our sin that we were saved from. Uh, I think we've forgotten how far we have fa- were, are fallen from the Lord, how much uh, iniquity, how, many tres- how much trespass, how much great judgment we were all facing before the Lord, before our holy God. Well, today's psalm is a psalm that reminds God's people to praise the Lord for his faithfulness to save us. And as we prepare for this Saturday's gathering, even, uh, and I hope even before the end of service today, I hope that this Kurt psalm will encourage us to, to praise the Lord. And if you want to just shout praise the Lord, you can do that. I know we have a lot of Asians here, not, not normal, but it's okay. It's okay. I won't judge you. In fact, I'm, I'll, say, I'll say it too. I'll say amen, praise the Lord, because God is worthy to be praised. And I hope this sermon will... These worship psalms like this, it just, they, are, they drive us to worship. Now, before we look into this psalm, because we haven't been in the psalms in a while, I want to do a bit of kind of review preparation for us, because for those of you that may be unfamiliar with the psalms, you know, the psalms is a book of basically a collection of worship songs. It's like a hymnal. It's like a hymnal where a hymnal might have all our favorite song, and praise the Lord, we have to sing Grace Greater Than All Our Sin, right? That was a great hymn. We haven't sung that in a long time, so I was thankful for that. But having a hymn of worship songs, but these are God's truths, inspired, inspired truths that were put to song by the worshipers of God. They were written by various authors, including kings like David and Solomon, worship leaders like Asaph and the sons of Korah, and even prophets like Moses. A good number of the psalms, of course, are, are anonymous psalms, but all of them were written by worshipers of God. Worshipers of God facing various circumstances in life, just like this room, worshipers of God here, all of us are probably facing various circumstances in our life throughout, and these worshipers were worshiping throughout Israel's history, throughout Israel's history. So therefore, the Psalms, they together teach us how to worship God as you and I face the various circumstances. And I know that some of you are facing some difficult circumstances. The Psalms are written by those who are facing difficult circumstances, and it's written by those who are facing joyous circumstances. And it's written for worshipers in all facets of life, all manners of, all manners of, of, of life, all periods of time in our life, all ages of our lives. It's a book written for us to learn how to worship. Psalm 106 is a lengthy psalm. It's 48 verses. Uh, we're going to preach the whole, the whole psalm. That means we'll have to go through pretty quickly. won't be able to walk through all the details for you. But I hope that you'll get the gist because it's a historical psalm as well. It kind of walks through the history of Israel. It was written by an anonymous author, but an anonymous author who most likely lived during the time of Israel's exile. 
Okay, when they were in Babylonian captivity, correct? Uh, you all remember that? They were, uh, they were taken to captivity a couple of times, taken by Assyria, and then eventually finally taken to uh, captivity by Babylon. And so the, Israel was dispersed into foreign nations. And though Israel is in exile because of her unfaithfulness, we see that the worshiper here who writes this psalm calls God's people to praise the Lord for his faithfulness to save. And that's what we're going to see. And so for us, an outline today, it's a pretty basic outline. Three parts of this worship. It's pretty clear, the parts. Three parts of the worshiper's psalm that direct God's people, you and me, to praise him for his faithfulness, his faithfulness to save especially. All right? So we're going to look at these three parts. We're going to spend a little bit of time in the first, a lot more time in the second, and just a teeny bit in the third. All right, so let's look then. The first part of the psalm that directs us to praise God for his faithfulness is quite simply the worshiper's praise. The worshiper's praise that we see. He begins with praise. And this is really the, the, the main point, the key point of this whole passage that's stated here from the ver- at the very beginning. Psalm 106, verse 1 to 5. Let's read this text for us together. The psalmist writes, Praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord, or can show forth all his praise? Remember how blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, in your favor toward your people. Visit me with your salvation that I may see the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. You see here that the worshiper begins with praise. In fact, he doesn't just begin with praise, he ends with the praise. You look to the very last verse of this chapter, of this psalm, and you'll see that it also says, praise the Lord. Of course, this phrase, praise the Lord, is in the Hebrew, it is the word hallelujah, and all of us are familiar with hallelujah, praise the Lord, is that exactly what it means? It was an interjection, it was an exclamation, it's a, it's a statement as well as an invitation. It's when I say, praise the Lord, you go, mm, that's nice. No, you don't, right? When I say, praise the Lord, what do you do? Hallelujah, okay, that's good too, you, you respond. Praise the Lord is a call to sing praise the Lord. It's to say, let us praise the Lord. So when I say praise the Lord for something, usually what often happens when I share with you, right? I say, hey, this happened to me. Praise the Lord. What do you say? You say, oh, that's nice. No, you say, oh, praise the Lord. You say that too, right? Because when I, when I say praise the Lord, you say praise the Lord or hallelujah. It's a natural response. And that's what the psalmist is doing. He's, he's calling people. He's calling the worshipers of God to join him in praising God, to join him in giving thanks to God, giving thanks to the Lord. Now, the cause of our praise and the giving of thanks is because it's stated in verse 1 quite clearly. For he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Brothers, sisters, worshipers of God, we ought to praise, love out to give thanks to God because God is a good God. And God is a loving God. And right there is the main message of this psalm. Right there. You can just, if you don't miss anything, don't miss this. Everything else is explanation. Let me unpack the statement for us. That God is good. It means that God is God who acts kindly. He acts favorably toward all people. God is good to all mankind in general. There's a, there's a common good, common grace that he shows. But there's a special goodness, special grace that he accomplishes in the lives of his people. And that goodness is, is that he treats them especially well because of his promises to them. That God is a loving God. He is loving too. His loving kindness, that Hebrew word kesed. It's a, this love is not like our romantic love that we describe today. It's a faithful love, a loyal love, a covenant, <coughs> covenant love. It is a steadfast love. God is faithful to love those whom he has chosen as objects of his love. God is, in his sovereignty, chosen to love his people. 
And when God chooses to love his people, he is steadfast in it. Nothing swerves him. Nothing sways him. Nothing keeps, prevents him from doing so. He will, and we're going to see that this is a huge, huge reason for our praise to him because God's love, his steadfast love, is an everlasting one. It's not fickle. It's, he doesn't change his mind. It's not dependent upon how you behave. It's a steadfast love. And for this reason, because God is good, and his love or his loving kindness is, is everlasting, it is reason for us to give thanks to God for how he shows that towards us and also how we praise him. Okay? And we're going to see, uh, the, and we'll see how this is fleshed out, particularly how he, sh- he shows this to us a little later in the psalm. But this psalm was written, of course, for a man, or, or, or most likely a man who is living in difficult circumstances. He is exiled in captivity. He's most likely a slave in captivity. Not free to do what he wishes, not free to do it well. He lives to serve somebody else. He's taken away outside the land, the promised land. He doesn't get to, to worship the way that God had called him to worship in the temple. They're completely removed from the things of God. But yet, though they are found themselves in difficult circumstances, he calls the people to praise the Lord. Brothers, sisters, you may find yourselves in difficult circumstances in life. And I know there are some really difficult circumstances in life that some of you are facing. It may be the reason why you're not here and you're at home even. It's because of those difficult circumstances. In the midst of your difficult circumstances, God is good, and God's loving kindness is everlasting. And because of that, in your circumstances, you can praise him even in the midst of your difficulties. Now, though the call to praise and thanksgiving is given here in verse 1, verse 2 rhetorically reminds us that No one, not a single one of us, can adequately praise God as we ought. We're all finite human beings. We we don't, you know, how many times has God blessed you, and do you even come close to giving thanks to God for all the things that he blesses us with? You know, know, probably hardly anything, right? We're not even close because we are too often distracted by our own earthly concerns. We're thinking about our own, we're too concerned with our own predicament, we, we're so forgetful that he might have blessed us like a day ago and we've already forgotten to praise him at all. Or worse, we think that the blessings in our life and the, the solution to the problems was somehow a result of our own, circuit, our own devices, our own wisdom, our own strength, and not God's, right? That's why we don't praise him as we ought. It's easy as finite, sinful human beings to, to as self-centered people, to not give praise to God as we ought. Yet nevertheless, the psalmist reminds us that those who are blessed by him, that is, those who are marked by justice and righteousness, ought to strive to do so. We, even if we don't do it perfectly, we need to strive to praise God. God is worthy of our praise. Let's strive to do so. Now, it's only in verse 4 of, this, uh, of the worshiper's praise that the worshiper's praise finally turns to focus on his predicament as reflected in his prayer, right? Verse 4, he says, remember me. He asked God to remember me in your favor toward your people. He says, God, don't forget me. When you're going through circumstances, going through trials, and you're waiting for an answer from the Lord, it's at those times that you kind of wonder, God, have you forgotten me? I'm still here. The difficulty is still there. The sin is still, I'm still wrestling with, and all number of things. Don't forget me, Lord. But this psalmist's prayer for God to remember him is rooted in his confidence that God is going to act in his favor toward the nation of Israel. He says, remember me in your favor toward your people, Notice how the worship refers to, the, to, to, the, to them before God, the, his, the people. 
He not only calls them your people, he calls them your chosen ones. He calls them your nation. He calls them your inheritance. That last one's real significant in light of Numbers. Numbers, what was their inheritance? Israel's inheritance is the land. But God is saying his inheritance, and this is from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy says that the people of God, the nation of Israel, are God's inheritance. They're his possession. They belong to him. And because Israel belongs to the Lord, he will keep his promises to them, including the promises that were made as early as back as the Abrahamic covenant, the promise of a land, though they're out of the land, a promise of a great nation, though they're dispersed through the nations, a promise of a blessing, though it sure doesn't seem there's any blessing. Things unseen are still promised, though promised by God can be guaranteed, can be it can be a, uh, something that we can hold on to in faith. In the worship praise that when God shows his favor towards his chosen people as he knows he will because of his promises, that God would remember him too. And that God would grant him salvation, deliverance from his captivity in exile. Notice then how praise, notice that it's a connection, right? In this praise, it results and leads to prayer in verse 4 to 5, right? So the praise in 1 to 3, the prayer in 4 to 5. Well, it's all really a prayer, but you know what I mean. Praise, prayer, request. Often we start, you know, when we pray, how do we often pray when it's a circumstance? A lot of times we start with prayer requests first, right? That's a natural thing. Oh, Lord, I'm, I'm hurting. I, I, I need this. Could you please grant me this? But we see here an example and how we ought to pray in the midst of difficult circumstances, and that is to start with praise. This is just a good little example here. Because when we recognize that God is good and God's loving kindness is everlasting, just thinking about who God is helps put our circumstance in perspective. It reminds us of his promises. It reminds us of things that God has promised to, to us who are his people. And it gives us hope in our circumstances. In fact, it's because of God's goodness and his steadfast love that we can actually even pray for him to save us, or to deliver us, or to provide an answer, because we belong to him. If you find yourself in difficult circumstances, or looking for, looking for an, a prayer, an answer to prayer, looking for deliverance from those difficult circumstances, may I encourage you, as we learn from the psalmist, to begin with praise. Begin by focusing on who God is, who God is. That how, and think about how he has been good to you. Think about how you have experienced his loving kindness in your life. Think about how you, every day you've experienced his blessing and help that to count those blessings and let that lead you then into prayer. For it's his character that gives us confidence in our prayers. As you reflect on that, and I hope that it will cause you to praise God and give thanks for his goodness, his loving kindness to you, his faithfulness. But God's faithfulness that we praise God for is especially seen when it's contrasted with our own lives, right? God is faithful, and we, in comparison, in contrast, are unfaithful. You know, if I compare myself with some of you, you know, I might say, well, I guess I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty guy, good guy. You know, well, yeah, yeah. I go to church once a week, you know, that's, I'm real spiritual, you know. But, you know, if I looked at myself before God, a holy God, do you think I would just be able to say that? Absolutely not, right? Because I fall short of his standards, his righteousness every day. Every day. In ways that I may not even be aware of unless I'm really prayerfully thinking about him. Actually, I fall short of standard every day, and I know it. Just ask my kids. The psalmist, and this leads us to the second, the second, uh, the second part of his psalm that drives us to praise God for His thankfulness, and that is the worshiper's pattern, the pattern of the worshiper's life. And it begins, in, it's, it's all the way from 6 to 46. It begins in verse 6. 6 is the key verse in the whole thing in this section. And the psalmist says, We have sinned like our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have behaved wickedly. The psalmist is confessing the sins of his people. 
there is a, there's a reason for their captivity in Babylon. It's not just because, oh, it just happened. And sometimes things do happen without any awareness, just like Job, perhaps. But there is a reason here for their, Israel's captivity in Babylon at this time because the psalmist writes, they have sinned. They've sinned like their fathers. It's because of their sin that leads to the circumstance that they find themselves in. It's because, in fact, really it's God's faithfulness that he disciplines them in this way. They've sinned like their fathers. And a lot of times, even in our own personal lives, we might find ourselves in difficult circumstances because of our sin. I think we should always, if we find ourselves in trials or afflictions, we should ask ourselves, and you know, before the Lord, and is, there, is it because of sin, Lord? Is it something you're trying to discipline me over? Sometimes there's a really direct correlation between, the, between certain, our activities and the circumstances we find ourselves in. But I like how the psalmist puts it, we have sinned like our fathers. That he recognized that his generation of Israelites are no different than the Israelite generations who've lived before them. It's, not, it's our fathers, so it's, it's like other, it's not the previous generation, but other generations before that. That's an interesting thing, you know. I don't know about you, but every generation, especially when they're about 20, 25, 20 to 30, I'll say, that's the majority of you. We, we, I know I was like this, okay. We like to think that, oh man, I'm smarter, we're stronger, we're wiser, we're better than the previous generation, especially when it's comparison to our parents, okay, right? And then, and then you get older and then you realize, oh, I've become my parent. <laughs> I just became my parent. I'm just like my parents. I've sinned just like my parents did. You will realize in your youth, you think that we think in our pride that we're better than the previous generation, but we are not. The psalmist speaks the truth. In, their, in our hearts, in their hearts, just their hearts are just like their fathers. They are sinners who have committed iniquity and behaved wickedly. And if you and I are honest before God, when we look at our hearts, we would see that we're sinners just like the previous generation. We're not less of sinners either. We're not, oh, well, I'm a less of a sinner than my parents because of, you know, we are, you know, whatever reason. We have all fallen, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then the following verses, the psalmist reviews basically Israel's history from all the way from Exodus to Judges. Numbers is in between there. Much of it serves to review, remind us of our study through Numbers, in fact. And I, I, was, I was drawn to this psalm because of it. And the psalmist traces the pattern of Israel's sin. Sure, if you compare one generation to the next, you can say, oh, maybe a little better or a lot better. You know, even as a king, some kings were, were, uh, were faithful to God, some kings were not. But when every generation is, you can trace it and you look compares before God, Every generation falls short. And though Israel sins, as we're going to see, throughout this history, from Egypt all the way to Canaan, God remains faithful to Israel. Let's look at then at how the worshiper's pattern of sin begins. It begins, according to the psalmist, in Egypt. Well, it begins even further, but Egypt is where he chooses to begin. In verses 7 to 12, we see the description of our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindnesses, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. Thus he rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up, and he led them through the deeps as through the wilderness. So he saved them from the hand of the one who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. Although Israel's fathers in Egypt had seen the wonders of God, and that's a reference to the, the, the miracle of those ten plagues that was at the hand of Moses and Aaron. And though they saw them, they didn't understand them, according to the psalmist. They didn't understand them because they forgot them. They forgot that they were demonstrations of, of God's, really manifestations of God's kindness to them. And notice that they had forgotten God's kindnesses, plural. There were multiple times when God showed his kindness to them, not only in the plagues where he judged Egypt and her gods, but in sending a deliverer, Moses, and allowing them when they were sent out to be 
to, to plunder the Egyptians, take, receive their, all their treasures to take with them into uh, the wilderness. And then, of course, in the big picture of delivering them from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. All that they had been ex- delivered from, experienced the kindnesses of God, yet when they reached the Red Sea and they found themselves on one, end, one side bordered by the Red Sea and on the other side Pharaoh's army, they forgot it all, and they rebelled. Of course, this incident was, is recorded in Exodus 14, verse 11, where Pharaoh and his army had pursued them all the way to the Red Sea, and when <coughs> Israel saw Pharaoh's army approaching, what did they do? They started to grumble and complain against Moses. Exodus 14, 11 says, Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt us with us in this way? bringing us out of Egypt, slavery in Egypt. Though they rebelled in this way, nevertheless, they were, God showed them grace. He was faithful to them. He had promised to deliver them, and he was going to deliver them. He caused the Red Sea to part so that they could walk across on dry land, And all the while, his pillar of cloud stood between them and the Pharaoh's army. So the Pharaoh's army was in confusion the whole time. And then only when they crossed did that God allow the Pharaoh's army to go through. But did Pharaoh's army catch them? No, the waters came across and killed them all. He saved them despite their sin. He saved them for the sake of his name, because of who he is, because of his character, because of his word because he is good, and because his loving kindness is everlasting. And then, of course, real easily, the people believed in him, and they praised him, and they worshipped him. But sadly, it didn't last long. They continued in sin. They continued sin in the wilderness. In verse 13 through 33, <coughs> pardon me, and this is where we see much of the uh, couple events in Exodus, but uh, events all, most of the events are found in Numbers. And we see a, a, just a, a quick description of the sins of Israel all throughout the wilderness. Verse 13 through 15, we see that they were greedy in the wilderness. They were greedy. They quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. So he gave them their request, but sent a wasting disease among them. Recorded for us in Numbers 11, the people basically forgot God that quick. And they did not seek his counsel. They, though they had been blessed richly with the best food that God would provide in the wilderness, the manna, honey-flavored wafers, abundant for them, never have to work for them. All you got to do is just pick it up each day. And yet they were greedy. They craved They wanted meat. They wanted meat to eat instead of this manna provided by the Lord. God in his judgment, of course, oftentimes what he does when he judges people for their sin is he gives them exactly what they want. We must be careful sometimes if we're going to ask for things that are sinful, God just may give you that as a judgment, as a discipline, because he loves you. And he sent them quail, and did he not? Quail that filled the whole camp. (laughs) They were picking up quail for days. And then when they started eating the quail, God poured out a plague upon them, a plague that killed many of them. Because of their greed. Not only, though, were they greedy in the wilderness, but they were also envious in the wilderness. Verse 16 and 18 talks about the sin of envy. When they became envious of Moses in the camp and of Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and engulfed the company of Abiram. And a fire blazed up their company. The the flame consumed the wicked. Recall, this is number 16. This is the rebellion of Korah, along with Dathan and Abiram and 250 other leading men, led a, a rebellion against the leadership of Moses and Aaron. They thought they had a right to be leaders too. They said, well, we could be leaders too. This is, this is like, this is, a, this is a democracy. Anyone can just kind of do, you know, you know, it's a free country. We can, we can offer incense too. You know, it's not just for the Levites. And so they 
thought they could lead the nation. But what they did not come, were not aware of is that when they rebelled against God's leaders, they were rebelling against God. They were envious for something that was not rightly theirs. They were jealous for something that was not. They wanted it, and they could not have it. And God, in his judgment, opened up the ground and swallowed up Dathan and Abiram and sent a fire to consume the 250 wannabe priests. See, God is faithful to judge Israel consistently throughout the wilderness. Not only were they greedy and not only were they envious, but they were also in the wilderness idolatrous. Verse 19 to 23, they made a calf in Horeb. Horeb is another name for Sinai, uh, Mount Sinai, and worshipped a molten image. Thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wonders in the land of Ham, and awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. The psalmist backs up to an earlier moment in the wilderness when they were still at Horeb or Mount Sinai. Recorded in Exodus chapter 32, Israel, of course, uh, it was 40 days. Moses was out on the mountain waiting for receiving the law from God. But they grew impatient. And they asked Aaron to make a, a golden calf for them, an idol for them. And what they did, what they did is they started worshiping this golden calf. And they essentially... Who they who were supposedly worshipers of God exchanged the glory of God for an image in the form of corruptible animals, as Romans 1 puts it. Moses was all that time receiving God's law in God's presence, while Israel below forgot God their Savior. They forgot the plagues, they forgot the Red Sea. In fact, God, while Moses was up there on the mountain, God told Moses that he was going to destroy Israel. He's going to start a new nation with Moses, in fact. He says, it was a, it says Moses, you know, I'm going to start a new nation with you. But Moses, in his righteousness, in his, in his, in his humility, did not take it as an act, as a, a, did not allow pride to consume him, but instead he interceded for the nations. And, he, and God turned away his wrath. And by the way, what did God do in his intercession? He appealed to God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's promises to them. God's faithfulness to his promises. He appealed to God's loving kindness. And God spared them. And though God spared them, they continued in sin. Verse uh, The fourth sin that they were guilty in the wilderness, they were unbelieving in the wilderness. Verse 24 to 27. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe in his word, but grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he swore to them that he would cast them down in the wilderness, that he would cast their seed among the nations and scatter them in the lands. Recorded for us in Numbers 14, Israel had sent out 12 spies into the promised land, right? And those 12 spies came back. 10 of them brought a, a bad report, Basically, a fearful report, an unbelieving report, and the two, of course, Joshua and Caleb, brought back a, a good report. But the nation as a whole chose to believe the bad report. And they chose the bad report in, in contrast to believing the good report. In f- essence, they did not believe God's word. That God, who promised to give them the land, would be able to give them the land, despite the fact that, yes, there may be large, giant-like people in the land. But they were afraid. They were fearful. They did not trust God, and they grumbled against Moses. They didn't listen to the voice of the Lord, and they refused to enter the promised land, though God led them right there to Kadesh Barnea. So God, what did he do in judgment? He condemned that generation, all of them, all the fighting men, 20 years old and upward, to die in the wilderness. Of course, after 40 years of wandering, the next generation of Israel is brought to the cusp of the promised land in the plains of Moab. And there we find, we think, maybe it's a second dream. Maybe it's going to be a little different. Well, but even there, Israel sins again. Verse uh, 28 to 31, they, are become, they sin in, they were sexually immoral. Verse 28 31, we read, They joined themselves also to Baal Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. 
Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds. And the plague broke out, broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and interposed, and so the plague was stayed. It was reckoned to him for righteousness to all generations forever. Of course, this is recorded in Numbers 25. Israel began, as there in Numbers 25 we read, Israel played the harlot with the daughters of Moab. Here the, it's termed as they joined themselves also to Baal Peor. And that's not just figurative, it's also literal. For in their joining with the idolatrous practice of Baal Peor involved sexual immorality with the daughters of Moab. It was an idol worship that involved sexual immorality. It was feasts and drunkenness and leading to carousing all in the name of worship of their idols. And God judged them for their sexual immorality as well as their idolatry. And even the food that they ate to the sacrifice offered to the dead, God judged them. It provoked him to anger. And he brought a plague upon the people. And it was spreading throughout the camp. In fact, it was spreading through the camp because they were bringing their sin right into the camp. One of the leaders even brought one of those, the daughters of Moab the daughters of the Midian into the camp where they were committing sexual immorality. It was only because of the intercession of Phineas, Aaron's grandson, the third high priest of Israel, who interceded in, on the nation's behalf, and the plague of God's wrath was stemmed. Lastly, in verse 32 33, there's one more sin that Israel was guilty in the wilderness, and that is they were guilty of contentiousness. They were contentious. Verse 32, they also provoked him to wrath at the waters of Meribah, so that it went hard with Moses on their account. Because they were rebellious against the Spirit, he spoke rashly with his lips. This is, kind of goes back in number 25 to Numbers 20. This is Numbers 20 now. The psalmist ends with this most likely because of its impact on Moses as well. Well, the people were complaining again, as they had been all throughout the wilderness. But this time they were complaining about no water again. And because they were complaining about water, there was no water at Meribah. They, they, they basically gathered together to contend with Moses and Aaron. That's what we, the wording we find in Numbers 20. They're, they were grumbling against, they were trying to say, they were trying to be, they're causing strife with Moses and Aaron. And so much so, and this become, had become a pattern in the life of Israel throughout the wilderness, that it, it even provoked Moses to anger. And Moses, who was you know, normally self-controlled and normally in calm, but at that point, he, it was like the final straw for him, and he sinned. Instead of speaking to the rock as, as God intended to provide water for the nation of Israel, he struck the rock twice, remember? And before that sin, because he did not obey God, as God's chosen leader, God had condemned him, too, to die in the wilderness. And yet... Um, we see that despite Israel's sin, despite their contentious, despite even Moses' sin, God remained faithful. And he eventually, though they sinned continually and with greed and envy and idolatry and unbelief and sexual immorality and contentiousness, among others, did God say, I'm, I've had enough of you? Did God say, no, okay, I'm done. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna start, let me find somebody else to start with. Let me start with Phineas, maybe. No. He had, these were his people. And he was faithful to them. It may take a generation later, which was the second generation, but he kept his promise to the nation of Israel and brought them into Canaan, the promised land, the land that they had despised, the one, the land that they had said, that, oh, our children are going to be killed in this land. Well, he brought their children into that land. Yet even still in Canaan, Israel persisted to sin. You see, there's a pattern of sin among God's people. And we see this pattern of sin finally in, in the land of Canaan. And we're going to just read this whole section to kind of just summarize it real quickly. Verse 34. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practice and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood the blood of their sons and their daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with the blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he abhorred his inheritance. 
Then he gave them into the hand of the nations, and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were subdued under their power. Many times he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel, and so sank down in their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry, and he remembered his covenant for their sake, and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. He also made them objects of compassion in the presence of all their captors. These events are all summarized basically very well for us in the books of Joshua and Judges. Joshua is where they enter and they conquer the land, they possess the land, and Judges describes that further, the cycles of Israel's sin. But from the very beginning, one of the key instructions, in fact, we learned it in Numbers already, was that God had commanded Israel, when you enter the land, you must destroy all the peoples of that land. You cannot allow the Amorites to live. Why? Because of their idolatrous worship. The idolatry, just like even the the Moabites and the Midianites, it would tempt Israel to mingle with them and to forsake the Lord. But sadly, you kind of re- we study the book of Joshua, and if you have time and you read that, you'll see that very soon, even in the summary in that first chapter, already you see that though they conquered much of the land, almost every tribe had some people, they, they didn't conquer this, and they, this tribe didn't conquer this, and this tribe didn't conquer that, and this, people, this tribe left these people here. All examples of disobedience because they did not fully obey God's command. If you don't fully obey, you are disobeying. And that's what Israel was. They were guilty of disobeying the Lord, even in the promised land. And of course, they, they joined along with this, the, uh, the, other, the, the remaining, those remaining Amorites and Canaanites in the land to worship their idols, even despicable offering of their children to demons in worship. They burned their children to idols. And because of their sin, God gave them into the hands of the surrounding enemies. And many times he would deliver them through what is known as Judges, right? The book of Judges. They would cry out and God would hear because he he is a loving kind, God of rich and loving kindness. He hears their prayer. He hears their cry of distress and he answers. He delivers them. He raises a judge to bring justice for his people. And when he, they bring justice, they, they rejoice. They may follow him for a little while, but then again, they fall back into sin. Again, they, they rebel against the Lord. Again, they're unfaithful. And though every time they were unfaithful, God remained faithful. He would discipline his people whom he loved. And when they cry out, he would answer them and deliver them through a judge. God shows himself faithful every time that Israel showed himself unfaithful. Time and time again, the psalmist remembers Israel's sins and recognizes that his generation is guilty of the same. We have sinned like our fathers in Egypt, in the wilderness, and in Canaan. Though God has been faithful, we have been unfaithful. We have fallen short. We have let him down. We have not lived as we ought. We've worshipped ourselves. We've worshipped idols. We've disobeyed. We've, we've lived according, done what is right in our own eyes and not God's eyes. But it is in contrast to Israel's sin that God's faithfulness is magnified, isn't it? Israel's sins were great, but God's loving kindness was greater. Mankind has advanced so much in our technology, in our education, in our knowledge. But we are still just as sinful as every previous generation. We just have more tools to be sinful. We're still greedy. We're still envious. We're still idolatrous. We're still unbelieving. We're still immoral. We're still contentious.
I would imagine there's not a single one in this room that's not been guilty of these sins in our lives. But the truth remains, as Romans tells us, that where sin increases, grace abounds even more, right? It's God's grace that abounds in our sin. And yes, we know that our sins are forgiven when we believe in Jesus Christ, but even on a regular, in our continual daily walk with the Lord, if we sin, God, and we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Sin abounds, grace abounds even more. God graciously forgives and, and He saves us and He forgives us and, and restores us even if we sin over and over and repeatedly. Each time we repent and confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive. This is His faithfulness because He's promised. He has promised to do so to those who believe. In his son. And this leads us to the third part of the psalm that we drives, directs us to worship and praise God, and that is the worshiper's plea. <clears throat> and this is a real brief one, but we'll cover it just briefly. The last two verses of the psalm, we read this. The psalm now the psalmist responds in, in a in a prayer request. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. And so the psalmist cries out, God, save us. Save us, O Lord our God. He calls God to gather the people of God in from the nations. It's because of the statement that we believe that uh, this was written in the exile because the, the people of Israel are scattered among the nations. And God, of course, does restore them in the exile, but even this promise is going to be fulfilled, is still yet to be fulfilled in the future when Christ returns. But it's a prayer request to God, for God to restore Israel to the land. And the expectation of the psalmist is that God is going to answer. He's going to answer the prayer. And he's confident he's going to answer because he says, so that as you gather from the nations, so that Israel would respond in giving thanks and praise to the Lord, that we would give thanks and praise you. And then he breaks out in the praise in 48, right? He blesses the Lord God. The Lord, the God of Israel, is faithful and deserving of praise from his people because God will deliver his people. Notice in the blessing, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Very, very importantly, he says, blessed be the Lord who is the God of Israel. He's our God. He's an Israelite writing. He's right. this is our God. This is why we praise you because you are faithful to us. You're our God. You're, you're blessed. You are faithful to us. You will deliver us. You will keep your promises to us. It's because of this covenant relation with him that he knows that God's going to answer and he wants to praise. He knows he will praise and give thanks to him. Now, it's real significant because as much as we'd like to say and shout that God is the God of America, God is not the God of America, though it'd be great if it was. He's not the God of any other nation. You won't find it in the Bible where he's going to say God is the God of India, or God is the God of Afghanistan. No, God is the God, in a unique way, the God of Israel. And that reflects his unique covenant relationship promises to the nation, which he will fulfill and keep because of this relationship. And that's why this God, who is their God, causes the psalmist to have such confidence in making this prayer for the Lord to deliver them. He prays according, he prays in this way, with confidence, knowing that it's going to lead to the praise and glory of God. So when we, so in our circumstances then, we kind of bring it to our day, what confidence can we have that we can cry out to God to save us in the same way? We're not Israel, but as we all know in 1 Peter, that we too are a holy nation. We too are a kingdom of priests. We too are a people for his own possession. 
we belong to God as the church of Jesus Christ. And because it's a, you can put it right there, blessed be the Lord, the God of church of the church from everlasting to everlasting. It's our confidence in God, the promise of God that he makes to the church that we know that he's going to keep his promises to us. And we should pray in light of that. We should pray not because it's our will, but we should pray because it's his will. We pray according to his will, according to his loving kindness. When we pray, we should not pray, not just ask for things for our sake, but we pray for his sake that he might be praised and glorified. But whatever our circumstances, we can trust God who is good and whose love is everlasting because he is a steadfast, loving God. And though we are often unfaithful, God remains faithful to discipline us, yes, as needed, but also to deliver us from sin that so easily entangles us. And the psalmist, just as the psalmist ends with a blessing of praise because of God, who is their God everlasting, we too can respond in blessing of God, praise of God, who is our God everlasting. We are his people. He is our God. He will be our God always. Through every circumstance, the circumstance you're facing even now, through every generation, the previous generation and this generation and the next generation. I often wonder and worry about my children and are we worried about our children? What, what kind of world? we? I think every parent does that. We've got, what world will we leave them? Well, it's a world that's going to be under the curse of sin. It's not going to change. But what can we leave them? We can leave them, lead them to know Christ. And if they know Christ, then they will have all that they need. Because God is the God of his people. God is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. And so therefore, let all God's people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Let me wrap up uh, just a couple questions. I know we have discussion groups sometimes during the week. For us, uh, just as you prepare this for this week in your small groups, what are you thankful to God for this year? Think about that. Be ready to share that uh, with one another. And maybe... How do you see uh, just unfaithfulness in your own life or in God's faithfulness in your life? The contrast of that. And then thirdly, uh, if you have not yet already, you're, you're, I would have asked you, have you cried out for God to save you? You know, if you're just checking us out, you're, you're kind of on the fence, you're, you're kind of seeking God, I, I, I'm thankful that you're here. I'm thankful for those of you that are online in that same predicament. Because God sent his son to die for your sins in your place. He provided a way to deliver you from sin and judgment. He died for our sins and though he was sinless and rose from the grave. So that all through faith in Christ might receive forgiveness, eternal life and become a part of his family, that you would come to know him as your God and that you would belong to him and he to you, that you can live this life the way that God designed your life to be lived. If you have not yet, I invite you to believe in Christ. Put your trust in him today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank and praise you for the psalm. Thank you for the reminder of these truths, that you are a God who is faithful, even though your people are often unfaithful. But Lord, it's in this contrast that we see your, your love and your goodness magnified. Thank you, Lord, especially that it was manifest, that your love is manifest in your son, the sinless son who died for sinful mankind. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for this reminder of our need as your people to worship you in whatever circumstance we may find ourselves in, even those difficult circumstances, and praise you because, God, you are good and your loving kindness is everlasting. 
and that you are our God. We pray that this Thanksgiving would be opportunities for us to declare what we're thankful to you for, including, hopefully, first and foremost, our salvation. May you, through our, thanks, our testimonies, open up doors for the gospel at our dinner tables with our, many of our unsaved family and, and friends and neighbors. And Lord, may you allow the gospel to be proclaimed so that many more will join us in praise of you. Thank you, Father, for our time and your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.